Deirdre Nehua has spent most of her life working for positive change for Ngai Māori, challenging the racism and inequities thrust upon our communities as a result of colonisation. She is also a writer and a poet. From her involvement in the Māori Land March and the land occupations of the 70s, 80s and 90s to working in prisons, reputedly becoming the first CEO to wear mukokowai and travelling the world to exchange Indigenous knowledge with other First Nations people, she has fit a lot of life into her seven decades. In this episode, we caught it all about everything. She shares her experiences growing up in Whangaruru to the moment in her life she became most politicised. She shares with us her poetry that she describes as Indigenous erotica and reminds us that you're never too old to enjoy sex. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Kia ora and welcome back to another episode of Nuku. Today I am in the whare with a Deirdre Nehua. Tēnā koe. Mōrena. Kia ora, <laughs> kia ora. How are you today? Having a, having a fabulous day? It's a beautiful day. I've just come in from hanging a red dress in front of my house in memory of all the Native American women, well, Indigenous women all over the world who have been murdered or gone missing. Taken a photo of it and put it on Facebook. As a way, that's what they do over in Canada to remember the missing and murdered Indigenous women that the police refuse to do anything about. Mm, and such a horrible epidemic that's actually happening over there. Mm. I wanted to um, have a it all with you today because you have such a fascinating life <laughs> and have done so many things, um, especially in pursuit of justice for Tewi Māori. But we always start firstly with who are you and where are you from? So ko weikwe no hiakwe. Uh, ko huri kiti maunga, ko whakapara te awa, ko whakapara te marae, ko whangaruru te moana, ko te ihi o nehua te whare tūpuna, ko mātātua te waka, o nā toki matawhaurua, um, ko Deirdre Nehua Ahau. I come Ngāti Wai, Ngāti Hau. I come from uh, Paradise in the Bay of <laughs> Islands, right up the Whangaruru Harbour where I was brought up there by my grandparents, Ani and Pita Strongman. And what was your childhood like growing up in that rohe? Well, I would... When I was five, our father died and my mother was widowed with four children. So my brother and I went out to Whangaruru and spent the bulk of our time up out there with our grandparents. Um, at the time, you know, when I was little, I could see all the nice things people in town had. I thought I was the slave because we had to, you know, work, dig the garden, um, help around the house. But, you know, it wasn't really until I became an adult that I realised how privileged I was to be um, 
able to have spent such a lot of time with my grandparents, particularly my grandmother, whom we all just adored. So I think I had a really, really special childhood when I look back on it now. What's one of the, I mean, I know your grandparents would have taught you and shared with you so much mātauranga, but what's one of the key learnings or lessons from that time in your life that you still hold on to today? When I, when I was small, um, I used to see things and my mother see Māori things and see people who weren't, you know, alive. And my mother was really frightened of that. She used to call it all that Māori bullshit. And I guess the thing that I really value that my grandmother taught me was she taught me that was normal. And if I used to see things or see somebody, she'd go, oh, so what did they look like? Oh, yes, that'll be Uncle so-and-so. <laughs> now, did what did he say to you? And and she kind of normalised it all and encouraged me to have conversations uh, uh, with them. And she taught me about rongo Māori, mm. taught me about Māori healing. Granddad did too. Granddad knew a lot about um, Māori healing and I think Granddad was quite um, uh, experienced matakite in his own right. So I, in growing up around them and observing the way they were with those things about Māori, which in those days nobody talked about, um, I think they normalised um, things around Māori spirituality, taught me to be really proud about being Māori. Um, and my grandmother had such gentle ways of teaching about things that young women should know as we grow up and uh, her connection with papatuanuku and being in the garden and caring for the elements that were around us. And, and same with Granddad. You know, Granddad used to take me for walks in the bush to get the cows and that. And all the way through, that was my storybook, going for walks or going fishing with my grandfather that was my storybook. We didn't have. We had one storybook in the house, and that was my, my that was my Deirdre in Wonderland. Was these journeys that I took with my grandfather and the stories that he would. Well, I thought they were made up stories, but they were actually true stories um, that he used to tell on the way. He used to show me where the trenches were, where our people fought battles. He would explain stories about the different par sites that were around us. If we were out fishing in the boat, <clears throat> he would show me how to mark our fishing grounds around the hills and gullies up and down the mm. harbour, how to find the right fishing spot by putting one monger in the saddle of another and lining it up with such and such an island and so on. And so a lot of the things that I learned in my childhood were about really about Rangi and Papa and their tamariki and how we were all interconnected and where we came from in that journey. And that storytelling that was shared with you was something that you continued on in your later life or past childhood, um, becoming or 
being a writer and a poet? Yeah, I can't have a short conversation. Every conversation I have is a, is a story. And um, my grandmother wrote poetry. My mother was a prolific writer. Um, and, you know, when my Auntie Biddy died, that was mum's sister, she died in her late 60s. And her and my mother had written a letter to each other twice a week from when they were teenagers without fail. And there were mountains of letters um, at Auntie Biddy's place that her daughter brought back to mum. And so, you know, I come from a family of prolific writers. Very, very proud to say that Briar Grace Smith is my cousin and, <laughs> you know, she, come, she came through Grandad's sister who was the next bay up from us at Whangaruru. When you look at your poetry and you look at the the writings that you've done over the years, have there been specific themes that have come from them or have has your writing changed with the different phases in your life? Originally, I used to write a lot about Papatuanuku. And then, of course, you know, as I got... I never thought I was a particularly good writer. It wasn't until I... Um, married Sid and he encouraged me to write and he really loved my writing and used to always want to read it that I felt kind of okay about letting other people see it. So when I was with Sid, I wrote a lot of poetry about love, about um, oppression of our people, about land rights, about different uh, land occupations we'd been involved in and it's kind of progressed with them, but I have to have, I must say, when I'm in love, I write the best poetry. <laughs> and the best poetry I've ever written has been when I've been with Sid and when I've been with Zach, whom I married nine years after um, Sid died, right. and Zach Wallace. With those two men also came other parts of your life that I'm not saying they necessarily influenced you because you were already on this pathway, but they also played a really strong part in these other parts of your life. And one of them has been uh, tirelessly spending your life working in and around justice for Māori and challenging racism and inequities in Aotearoa that are a direct result of colonisation. You have been on land marches, you have uh, worked in so many different areas that have addressed these issues. Why, what was the drive for you? Because some people are pulled in these ways. Um, how do I describe it? Almost like they're tupuna dragging them in this direction and this is where your focus is going to be and others kind of stay on the outskirts. Uh, what, what was it for you? that pushed you in that particular direction? I think I've always had a strong sense of injustice and, and wanting to stand up for the underdog. Um, and I first became aware of just how unjust things were for us. My grandfather was a bit of a philosopher and he used to talk a lot about, you know, how we were ripped off and how Pākehā's... Uh, wanted to steal our land and things like that. Granny was a bit more gentle about it. I got a job when I was in my teens at the Māori Land Court and I 
became the researcher for the court when the judge went out to do hearings and things. I did all the research for the court and that's when I started things that I researched and found in the Māori Land Court archives just didn't add up. They didn't make sense in my head. I'd go home and ask my grandfather about them and he would um, expound about how colonisation, which wasn't the word that he used, but how uh, we needed to understand the tools of the Pākehā so that they could not continue to rip us off in the way that they were. Mm. He was not a big fan of the Māori Land Court and a lot of his explanations about how the Land Court was set up not to so-called protect us, as we were told, but to find other ways to alienate Māori land. Um, So I think it was probably that that made me first realise how much of our land had gone missing in in devious ways and was stolen from us. Mm. And and I guess it 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 was always there and then of course when the Māori Land March came along, I was living in Hamilton, joined the Land March and there was no turning back after that. It had changed me forever. And when I moved back up to Auckland and and absolutely when I got involved with Sid because um, he was, I wasn't really involved with people who were in the in the thick of Māori politics. And uh, when I got together with Sid, I suddenly found myself surrounded by all these very academic Māoris whom I had only seen on television. And for quite a few years, I used to just um, keep quiet and hope they thought I was wise because I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> But I had also made um, a decision during those times that I wasn't prepared to be frontline enough to get arrested because I had children then that were my children and I didn't want to be in a situation where I was arrested and I wasn't sure what would happen with my children because I was separated from their father. You talk about the land march being life-changing and it, it was a really significant time in our history and a really significant moment in our history. What was it about your time on that land march that really transformed who you were? I think, uh, I think with everybody, with every Indigenous person, that you know your time comes in its in its own time, that that awakening comes in its own time, and I don't know particularly what it was. I th- oh well, what made me join the land march was um, um, under the Rating Act, I think it was. The government had decided they were going to take way back then in the seventies all the um, like the foreshore and the seabed. Mm. And the, the land that they were taking on mass up north was the Ngātiwai coastline. Um, and that was home and that was the 
place that I lived, breathed, ate and slept for was Whangaruru and it was right smack bang in the middle of it. So I was going to go on there. I went to see my grandmother and said I wanted to march for Whangaruru. I was going to do that come hell or high water. And it was really the passion that I felt for our home at Whangaruru that launched me into um, the land march. And then I met so many really inspirational people on the land march. Um, I come from a family of really strong women. The women in our family are much stronger than the men. And suddenly I was surrounded by all these passionate, articulate, beautiful, amazing Māori women who were not afraid to stand up and say what they thought and who um, never stood in anybody's shadow. And that was kind of a new thing for me. I'd had the same kind of thoughts, but I'd never dared to stand up and express them out there in public. And in fact, I think the land march was the first time in my life I ever spoke in public wow. down at a rally in Porirua. Do you remember what you what you said? Oh, I have no idea. I got <laughs> up there. I got up there and I was um, I was so nervous. My knees were my knees were shaking. I was holding on to. I think they had a podium or something there. But you know, I, I probably just did a rant. But it was the first time ever that I spoke in public, and it was that thing, you know, that moved me from the gut and from the heart that made me get up and do that. Mm. And even even today, I, it's still that kind of movement inside me. I have to feel impassioned to get up and, and speak and be involved in things. I was, um, you know, all the years that I was married to Sid, he was a very articulate speaker and used to delivering in public and that was always his forte, not mine. You know, I always used to think, oh, one television star and public speaking in the house is more, speaker in the house is more than enough. So that was always his thing. How old were you at that time? How old was I? Yeah. Um, I think I, when I was with Sid. Yeah. I was in my 30s. That, that sort of landmark I was a late starter. <laughs> I was a late starter. <laughs> In your 30s, so it was only... So I was 25 when the... Uh, hang on, 20... Um, yeah, I would have been 25 on the Māori Land March. And when I got together with Sid, I was in my 30s. And it would have been less than 10 years later that you received your mokokauai. That's right, yeah. Tell me about the journey to receiving your mokokauai, because we were talking about it earlier that you didn't know or see anyone else in Tāmaki with Mokokauai no, at that stage. I stand to be corrected on, think, on this, but I think I was one of the first, if not the first, to women to receive a Mokokauai. And it was, people were shocked back then. and I, There was nobody else that I saw anywhere in Auckland with a mokokauai, or anywhere, anywhere else in the country for that matter. And um, I made a point of um, going around to a couple of seminars with uh, Gordon to try and 
encourage young Māori women to, or any Māori woman, not just young ones, to take um, moko kawai because for me it was part of stepping out and standing up and saying loud and proud and as in your face as you can possibly be that I'm here, I'm Māori. Um, you can't look at me without knowing that. But when I got mine, there was a lot of... Um, Really bad comments came from particularly Māori men. Um, there was a lot of comments around, who do you think you are wearing mm. that? Or who said you can wear that? Or who said you have the mana to wear that? Real nasty comments. And funny enough, it you know, Pākehs used to come up to me all the time and say how they remembered older Pākehs saying how they remembered seeing women um, who used to have moko kawai back in the 30s and 40s and how lovely it was to see again. Sometimes when I first, you know, when I went to go on the marae when I first got it, um, Māori women, old queer, would come up and and just sort of stroke my face and cry, mm. which was really lovely, you know. And and a uh, couple of times when I went to Australia, people would just stop in the street and stare. But in Australia, there were quite a few Māori who just came up and threw their arms around. I have no idea who they were. <laughs> just came up and threw their arms around me. And I remember um, my my daughter was Miss New Zealand and she went off to Puerto Rico for the Miss Universe competition. And we went from there to, my auntie shouted us to Las Vegas. And our first night there, we were walking down the main strip of Las Vegas with our mouths open, looking at all the lights. And this black guy walked past me and he spun around and come back and he goes, is that some kind of like tribal thing on your face? (laughs) (laughs) And I went, yeah, I guess you could say that. And he goes, man, that's some mean shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, you know, I love it today that it's so, it's so normalised. Mm. I, I think I've always thought that the moko kawai was beautiful on Māori women. But we there were all these myths going around that you had to be some kind of a princess or do something amazing and all this before you could wear it. And and I remember going to see a kaumatua from Ngāti Wai after I'd had it done and I was so proud and he said to me, what did you go and do that for? You look really ugly now. And I was, I was gutted that one of our men would say that to me. Mm. My mother was really angry with me. She, she nutted off in a not very nice way. And uh, Sid leapt to my defence and growled at her. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's fabulous now that so many Māori women are wearing it and um, it's so recognisable mm-hmm. internationally now. One of my nieces, she's I think she's 17, she just received her mukukauai uh, just within this last month and it's become so normalised in her whānau, her mother and her mother's sisters received it with their mother a few years ago, and now my niece has just received hers. Well, my sister, who's 75, 
is getting hers done this weekend. Wow. Which is amazing because when I got mine done, I phoned her and said, I'd really love you to come. I'm going to get a mokokawai. And she said, no, I won't be doing that. And now she's getting hers done. I spoke to her on the phone last night and she said, I am just so ready to do this. So that's how huge the turnaround has become. How much it's evolved mm. in society since then. You, We talk about you possibly being the first wahine to receive your kawai at that time, but you were definitely the first wahine CEO to wear moko kawai. Is that right? Or, well, reputedly. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Well, who were you the CEO of? What, what, what organisation? I, I was, no, I was in senior management then. Mm-hmm. Um, I was... Um, in senior management at the heart, at the Blind Foundation. Right. And actually it was really lovely. I, I, I told the CEO that I was um, going to get it done and I had taken a week off. And when I came back, all of the staff had learnt a Māori song. <laughs> then they were all Pākehā. Mm. They'd learnt a Māori song and all of the board turned up and they asked me to go into the hall, you know, that they had there on site. And they made all these speeches and sung this waiata they'd learnt to me. And I was really, really touched. Quite a few of them gave me little gifts and a note. And I left that job and I then became CEO of Te Hotu Manawa Māori, which was the Māori Heart Foundation. Mm. When we... <laughs> Uh, you've talked a bit about being a mama, and when we were having a corridor earlier, um, your wonderful daughter was helping to share and remind you of some of the great things that you'd done <laughs> in your life. And one of those things was that you you brought your children up in a Tao Māori, Te Reo Māori speaking environment, and were one of the founding parents. Is that right of the of Māori medium education or putting your children into early Reo? Yep. You know, we were just lucky to be around during that time mm. when the Foundation Kohanga Reo movement started. And I can remember back then, you know, when it it was starting to come about, I was mates with Vapi Kupinga, and I remember her saying to me way back thing, this is going to be huge, it's going to be so much bigger than we ever imagined. And back then the Kohanga Reo were all taking part in people's houses, garages <laughs> at home, little places here and there. And the Komata and queer were coming in and teaching the language to our tamariki. And um, my two youngest children were lucky enough to be foundation pupil, pupils of Leti Brown's kohanga here in, in Tamaki. And... Um, she, her and Eddie had set up one of the first kohanga reo. And, and, you know, we, the, the, the guts of the kohanga reo movement was our people and our kaumata and our queer. And then people internationally, in, in, indigenous people internationally, started looking at it and how successful it was. Mm. And that's when the government got in on the act. They were shamed into supporting Kohanga Reo because it was so successful and it was taken out 
to all sorts of other places in the world. I know that I think it was Linda Smith went over to help the Irish, you know, with setting up a movement for them to learn the Gaelic language again. Um, And, you know, in Hawaii, throughout the Pacific, in the Americas, in Canada, all of their learning their language was based on what we had started here in Aotearoa with the Kohangareo movement. So the government was shamed into supporting it. But what they did then was they said, oh, well, you can't teach te reo Māori unless you're a registered teacher. Mm-hmm. And back then, our kaumata and queer and, and native speakers were all teaching our tamariki like we've done for generations. Um, and then they started putting Pākehā structures into it. You must be a registered teacher. You have to teach in a registered building. You've got to have a food licence for their lunches and on and on it went. They further colonised our real yeah. yet again. And, and I think we have to be careful today. I see, you know, in corrections, for example, that they're introducing all these Māori programmes into the prisons. But what they do is they cherry-pick our tikanga Mm. and then they write up a syllabus about what it's going to look like. And we need to be very careful that they don't start taking over, government departments don't start taking over and telling us what our own tikanga is because that's the way they do things. And that that's a really interesting point because it also sparks my brain to think about our ministers that we have in government and so we have Māori representation in government, which in essence then filters down into the government uh, departments who have a, a say and control over these systems, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're Māori, because even though they might have Māori at the face of them, they're still within a Pākehā system. That's right. If You, you, you know, and the biggest um, example of that today really is corrections and Oranga Tamariki, and they've got a bloody cheek calling it Oranga Tamariki. Mm. They should name it after the Pākehā selves because it's the it's a continued oppression of of our people. And, you know, they um, write up all these ways in which you deal with Māori people, but it's Pākehā people that are uh, sent out into the masses. They We, we end up training... Pākehā people, how to interact with us. That's not how it should be done. You know, we're the best people to look after us. When I've been, I've spent some years working with people who come out of prison and I always made sure when I was a manager that I hired people who had been in prison Mm. because in the same way that the best people to take care of Māori are Māori. The best people to take care of people that have been in prison are people that have been in prison because they know what it feels like. And even though I've worked in that field for a long time, I've never been to prison. I don't know what that feels like in my visceral guts. Mm. I don't know all the tricks of the trade and the best workers I've ever had working in that field have been people that have worked in prison. And we don't want to be out 
getting into the game of teaching Pākehās how to put on their I really want to relate to you suit and get the script out on how to work with Māori, they'll never be able to do it because they're not Māori. You talked a little bit earlier about how the Kohanga Reo movement influenced Indigenous cultures around the world and you yourself have worked with Indigenous peoples around the world. Can you share with me a little bit about the mahi that you've done with these different Indigenous groups around the world and how you've been able to share and experience that mātauranga and bring some of it back here to Aotearoa? I guess the most amazing experience was... uh, Oh, when we went to Libya, that was pretty amazing. But the most amazing experience for me personally was... I was lucky enough to get to travel with some of the seers and healers in um, Great Turtle Island. Um, I worked as um, doing cultural exchange in some of the prisons in Great Turtle Island, Um, took part in a lot of their ceremonies. And in fact, my daughter... Um, ended up getting married to a man who's a Mohawk Cree. Um, They had a daughter whose name is Cree and she went over there with her two young children who are now teenagers who were fluent Māori speakers. So as Cree was getting older, they would only speak to her in Māori. So her first language was Māori. Then her Cree grandfather said, why why am I having to use Māori words to talk to my <laughs> granddaughter? You know, I'm going to teach her Cree. And my daughter Katia made sure that her and her daughters learnt the Cree language as a mark of respect to the tangata whenua over there. But initially, for a while there, um, Shane's family, who are Cree, in order to communicate with the mokopona, we're having to sp- speak to her in Māori, <laughs> which I think's uh, which I think's a, a really neat story. Yeah, and that's quite incredible when you have mokopona essentially leading the learning of language yes. and the different languages, and really atahua that your daughter also decided that she would learn the Cree language. I think that's pretty spectacular. And she said that she said that the Māori language has become so more valuable to her because she's away from Aotearoa. Mm. Um, but when I was in um, Canada, I did a vision quest, which is um, three days, three nights, no food, no water, and they stick you in the bush and leave you there in search of a vision. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds lovely. <laughs> Where do we all sign up? <laughs> and um, I've done three sun dances, and the sun dance is the most sacred ceremony um, of the people of Great Turtle Island, and it. Um, I, I can't explain it short of saying it's life-changing, but the sun dance... You dance for three days, three nights, no food, no water, from sunrise, which is about six in the morning, 
till sunset, which is about 11 o'clock at night. Wow. Um, and you dance throughout that period. And you dance for the people and for the healing of the people and the earth and, you know, those big things. Not can I win lotto, but to heal the earth, to heal the water, the creatures that live on it, and all the people from around come to the sun dance for healing. So when you're dancing, you're in a state of tapu and you're the direct connection to the creator to bring help bring about the healing for the people that come. It's, it's an incredible, deeply spiritual experience. I, I loved it over there. I, I connected with the tikanga of those people immediately, and it was really weird, even though I don't speak their reo, I understood everything they were doing, and they were so steeped in ceremony. And I think, I feel sad that a lot of ceremony um, that we have in everyday life, or we had, you know, um, rites of passage for young men and young women, when women come into moon and when men when boys, when their voice drops, usually go through a rite of passage. And a lot of those things, a lot of those ceremonies we've lost um, due to colonisation. Did you do any of those <coughs> ceremonies with your tamariki? You know, when, when um, my girls first came into Moon um, and I talked to them about it, I remember one of them saying to me, Oh, Mum, they've already talked to us about that at school, and I felt really ripped off. Mm. I I was really annoyed, and I was pissed off, that the Pākehā school system had taken away my right as a, a mother, an Indigenous mother, to speak to my daughters about those things that were so sacred and so special. And um, I wish I had been more assertive at the time about addressing it with the school. Because when I was young, you know, I can remember my grandmother having these beautiful kōrero with me about, um, she said, in all of your life, that you'll, you'll grow up, you'll get married, you'll have a husband, you'll have children, but in all of your life, the only, the, the one thing that you will own that you can only ever say is yours is your body. Mm. And so you have to honour it and care for it and treat it for the special entity that it is. And when you do decide to share it with somebody, make sure you share it with somebody who will honour it in the same way that you do. You know, and I think that's really beautiful, kōrero. My mother said... Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and you, immediately, you immediately wonder why and think, oh, that'll, that, that ought to be something I do. Mum said not to. <laughs> Mum said not to. Must be fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's go and try it out. <laughs> when we think about your life and all of the different parts of your life and all of the experiences that you've had in your life, what are some things that stand out for you? Um, being Māori, 
the strength of Māori women. I love that my daughters are all strong Māori women. Um, those two men on the wall there, <laughs> Sid Jackson and Anzac Wallace, being in love. And I like that now that I'm in my 70s, um, I'm able to give back what little knowledge that, that I do have. Um, you know, my, my daughter rings me from Canada with some dramas or whatever she might be having with her children. But I can uh, talk to her about... That's what part of growing up is, eh? It's testing the boundaries mm. and finding your own wings and wanting to fly and, and the fear we have of parents of letting young people do that. And, and I, I think now I've got older, I'm less angry about the injustices that I've seen around me. I'm more likely to look for a, I guess, a gentler way around finding solutions. And, and being more open. I like to think that I, well, I certainly try to be scrupulously honest a lot more than I did when I was young, you know, because, you know, I think when you're young, you get into a lot of bullshit just because you're young. Because <laughs> <laughs> so you're trying to... new things, and, you yeah. know. <laughs> so, you know, I wouldn't want to be young again. It's, like, too fraught with difficulties. And... and I quite like I, I quite like being the age that I am. Mm. I quite like that I'm older. I I don't look at it with dread that I see in some Western cultures. I love what aging's done to my mind. Um, I don't know that I love what it's done to my body, but I think I've earned it. You know, <laughs> um, it's like a beautiful tree that's blossomed and all the flaws that it has in it, it's still beautiful. So I, I don't mind being older. Mm. I think it's a good place to be. Speaking about age and our bodies. Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she knows where this is going. Um, I had asked you, what is a crazy but true fact about you? And, and you said to me, well, I don't know if it's crazy but a true fact, but here's something. You're never too old to enjoy sex. And I was like, yes, someone <laughs> wants to talk about sex. Because, I don't know, we're, we're 80, 81 deep and we, <laughs> we haven't had a corridor about sex yet. And uh, let's have that corridor. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so never too old. And I think this is the thing that... And those who are uh, in a younger age, um, well, we never want to picture our parents or grandparents having sex, so that's probably one thing that kind of blocks our minds off of that at, a, yeah, at that, that age. Because <laughs> they do. But if we're talking about sex and we're talking about uh, Indigenous erotica, which is some of the poetry that you write. Yes. Tell me, what, what, is, your, what is your whakaro on all of this? On this topic, and, on and, sex, on sex, and how you, 
how you write about it and how you experience it at your age? I think um, colonisation has ruined our sex lives. <laughs> you know, and I think uh, the media and the way that women are objectified mm-hmm. has taken away a lot of the mystery. I often look at young girls today and think, oh, darling, when will you realise it's what you can't see that's interesting, not what you can see? Um, you know, and, and, and growing up, nobody talked about it. My mother certainly didn't, except to say, don't go there, uh, which, of course, we all do. And I fell in love again at 69, Sixty-eight, when Zach and I met again, mm. and you know, so I can honestly say you're never too old to enjoy sex. <laughs> it's probably probably would embarrass my sons more than my daughters, but I think it's it's as natural a part of life as anything else that we do. I don't know, apart from the Christianity colonisation, all hung about, hung up about it thing. So I decided, mm, maybe 15 years ago, to start writing poetry around sex. And it's not smutty and it's not dirty, but it celebrates the beauty of sex. Mm. Uh, it, celebra- it celebrates creation. It celebrates those beautiful times between a man and a woman, it's nothing to do... Because I don't think sex is anything to do with being smutty. I think it's the most amazing, beautiful experience that we can have on this earth. It's right up there, you know, with giving birth and falling in love and all of those sorts of things. And we should celebrate it and we should talk about it. And we should open, be open about it. And, yeah, we should have laughs about it as well. And I have lots of laughs with my daughter about daughters um, on that subject. Not so much with your sons? <laughs> yeah, I think my sons are more like, mm, you know, Māori blokes. Mm. Not something you talk about <laughs> with women if you talk about it at all. They're not very romantic, my sons. <laughs> when one of the things you also do is you tell your mukapuna to talk to you about sex, like if they have questions or if they... Oh, I don't tell them to talk to me, no. but if, if the opportunity <laughs> yeah, arises... If they have questions, yeah. or thing, you've, you've opened yourself up to say... If you go there. Feel yeah. free to ask me. And I think that's admirable because my, my grandparents would have never spoken to me about sex. My grandmother did, but I didn't realise at the time that's what she was talking about because it was always explained so beautifully. Mm. You know, like when, when I said before, her, her comments were around the lines of the only thing you will ever own on this earth is your body. So when you give mm. it to somebody, give it to someone who's going to value it, who's going to worship it. You know, I didn't know at that stage when I was young that's what she was talking about, but it was. And I actually believe that our people had, if you if you read history, our people had very open views about sex and healthy views about sex. And there would be less 
uh, rapes and violence in this world if we had healthier views around sex and stop pretending it didn't exist and we don't talk about it and we hide about it. We, we hide it under a mat somewhere. I, I, I feel sad the way that um, the whole subject is objectified and packaged to sell things and it's cheapened. And that's all comes from a culture that's not ours. Mm. We've reflected and talked about your grandmother quite a bit. And I know there are other wahine in your life that have influenced you on your journey. Who are some of the the Indigenous women that you reflect on that have played a part in, in your world? It's really hard to put it down to any one or two women because every Indigenous woman I have ever met has had a profound effect on me in one way or another. Um, I mentioned my mother because she, um, she taught me to be like water. And by that I mean she was widowed three times. Wow. And I just watched the journey, you know, the water falling and then levelling out and churning up and, and just that observation of her life's journey. It was like a river flowing from the mountain, falling down the waterfalls, churning up amongst the rocks and then going out to sea. And I, I think I actually wrote a poem around when she died about her um, comparing her life to the different seasons. Um, I mentioned Old Woman Bear, who's a Cree woman who spent many, many years working in the United Nations as um, an advocate for Native people on Great Turtle Island. And one of the smartest women I know, and I know so many smart women, um, but she taught me how to use the, the educated weapon of the Pākehā how to use their weapon against, turn it around against them, but to still hold on to your own mm. tikanga. How to use their tikanga against them, but always to hold yours there. Like I said, I, I find it hard to single out one or two women. And I think I said on the brief that I gave you that one of the women that inspires me today is my youngest daughter, Katia, the one that lives in Canada, because mm. she's she's strong, she's lippy, she's up herself, <laughs> she takes shit from nobody, and she's brutally honest in her dealings. Um, but she'll own what she's done wrong, and those are all things. Being especially being brutally honest with people, that that's all things we've been taught in terms of being nice. We've been taught to be nice to people. We've never been, well, at least I wasn't taught to just dish it up to the people the way that mm. you see it. And if they don't like it, well, let's have a conversation about it. And if they still don't like it, well, that's what I think, so you have to deal with that. When you talk, <clears throat> when you talk about her, you use the term role model. 
but she's a role model. Yeah, she is for me. And I think often we don't look at people younger than us as role models in society. We often see role models as people who are older than us or who have lived lives longer than us or who have greater experiences or in a higher position than us. And it's it's not a great way to look because... No, you know, just because you're old, it doesn't mean you're wise. Mm. Some of the biggest idiots I know are old. <laughs> <laughs> and And I actually... Three of my daughters I see as being role models and um, my eldest daughter, Casey, she's one of the strongest women I know, been through some really, really tough times in her life mm. and she's morphed out, got her kawaii and, and she's just beautiful now and I'm really, you know, I'm really proud. I really look up to her for the journey she's taken. And um, my other daughter, Ramari, who's actually uh, Sid and Hannah's daughter, but she's been my daughter since mm. forever as well. Um, she's one of the smartest women I know. You know, really, really incredibly bright women. And I always wanted to be, there's two things I wanted to be. I wanted to be a CEO because I thought they were really brainy. And when I got to one and I was mixing with CEO, I was like, these people aren't smart at all. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a real shock to me to, to discover that CEOs weren't actually that, they learnt a lot, but mm. they weren't actually brainy and they weren't necessarily good people. Always wanted to be a CEO and got there and it wasn't all that. And I always wanted to be that person who turned up at the party and danced on the table, but I was never game enough to get on the table and dance. <laughs> what about now? Um, yeah, now I wouldn't care. Yeah. I think now I'd probably do it. I want to ask you what it is to be an Indigenous wahine today, because we've already talked about how society has changed over the years and how the way we view mokokowai, the way uh, wahine... Well, actually, wahine have always been strong over the years, but even just the way that wahine hold themselves differently today and the different uh, roles that they're in and the different mahi that they're doing and the way that society and our governing body is slowly changing, but the the influence of years of amazing Māori and Indigenous activism, it's probably the best way to, best kupu to use, that have really influenced and changed our society over the last few decades, we're in this point right now. What does it mean to be an Indigenous woman right now, today? Gee. Shall I have a look on the phone and see what <laughs> Katia sent me? <laughs> I, I, I don't consciously think of myself as being an Indigenous woman. I think of myself as being a woman of just of just being me, really. Mm. And I think that the the values that I see in amongst our amongst our women, indigenous women all over the world, have got that common denominator. Doesn't matter where I've been, we've been able to. And I think it's to do with being oppressed and being strong. 
we're survivors, we're still here. Um, I think we still have those links to Rangi and Papa and those things that go back to our spirituality, to our tūpuna. I think those things are genetically ingrained and it's still there in us. And if we dig deep enough, we'll find it. So I don't know what it is to be an Indigenous woman because I don't know how to be anything else. To to me, I'm I'm just just me. Um, but if I look at Indigenous women, I think I think we're we're beautiful. I I don't think I've met an Indigenous woman that hasn't impacted on me in some way or another, and I can't say that about non. Indigenous women, because mm-hmm. I think there's that inner strength and there's still that connectedness that we have. And I, I think that Indigenous women will lead the will lead the world. I think that that's our quest is to lead the world, and and we have to take that that kōrua and put it on and wear it and walk with it, and and do that mahi. Because if we don't, then I think all will be lost, you know. We're the creators here on earth. We carry the sacred birthing waters gifted from Tangaroa within us. So it's only us who can heal the water. It's only us who can heal the land. And, and, and our men have got to learn with us. They're not walking beside us anymore. So they've got to come up and learn with us, from us, rather than what it's been for the last however many hundreds of years we've been, where we've been knocked into submission. Mm. And um, I think that we've got to be those leaders, that we've got to have the belief in ourselves, the belief in, the, in our young women coming through, and... You know, when I look at the world today and all the things that we were jumping up and down for 30, 40 years, 50 years ago, um, I think the world's in good hands because when I look, the leaders that are coming forward are all women. Mm. I love it. I was going to ask you what your hope is for the future, but you've already shared that. And so... I'm going to ask you your final question, which is, what's one thing you want to leave for all of us? What's one bit of advice or some whakaro that you want to leave with us today? Oh, shall I say that one we said before? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sex is still cosmic in your 70s. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you any different. <laughs> I love that. There you go, Tefano. <laughs> plenty, plenty more excitement to look forward to, and um, uh, I just, I have really enjoyed our corridor today. I just want to thank you for making the time to have a corridor with us for sharing uh, your experiences and just a snippet into the full life that you have had. I want to mihi to you to thank you for the mahi that you have done uh, for us, the mahi that you have done in fighting for justice, uh, in the varying roles that you have had, right from 
uh, your early years uh, through to your mahi and health, uh, your poetry and your writing, um, land marches and, and occupations, and even uh, through all of your mahi as a healer. And so I just want to mahi to you and say tēnā koe. Thank oh, you. Kia thank you. I should have read you one of my poems. Oh, let's do that. Let's have one. Wondrous the made-to-measure fit Of hand cupped on face, on breast, on hip The S of shoulder, back and thigh Aligned at length Beautiful the lacework of light Played by leaves on bodies revealed Hearts hum to the thrum of of a sickle moon And Venus in tune Stars dancing at fingertip distance Flirting to be touched Reveal so much and light the way to you. Tangaroa's song welling up through the door we never saw before and landing in my throat for translation from a whisper barely registered to a primal scream and then it seems tender the moment of the sharing of the soul locked in by mouth, by heart, by whole of body in this made-to-measure fit and all of it because we dared to jump into free fall until he caught me and I caught him. Hmm.